This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 13th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... One of the things that scientists worry about CRISPR is what they call an off-target effect. Uh, but it's possible, what they've seen is sometimes it cuts the wrong part of the DNA, and that could use, lead to you know, terrible consequences. And so you know, in my book, you see this start to happen. You see these people who were designed to be super soldiers, their bodies are breaking down. That's Mark Alpert. He was a writer and articles editor at Scientific American for 10 years before leaving to become a novelist. Mark has joined me on other episodes to talk about a couple of his previous sci-fi thrillers, such as The Orion Plan and The Furies. Now he's written The Coming Storm, described by one reviewer as not just ripped from the headlines, it's an alarm bell ringing from the near future. Midway through talking to Mark, we'll have a segment sponsored by AstraZeneca. I spoke with Mark about The Coming Storm before the pandemic hit, so we met face-to-face in his apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We don't want to give away a whole lot of the plot because that's the fun of a novel, especially one like this. Uh, but there, there's the real science that you do talk about, uh, the climate change implications for sea level, uh, CRISPR technology. So why don't we talk about what's real in the book and then how you spin off what's real into, let's say, the either the futuristic or the imaginary. Right. Well, uh, I imagine The Coming Storm to be a novel that would look at what bad things could happen if, if current trends continue. And one of them, of course, is climate change. Uh, I think the book was inspired more by the experience of living through Superstorm Sandy more than anything. I mean, you, you could see it right there. This is what's going to happen if we allow sea levels to continue to rise. We're going to see storms like this more and more often. And so uh, the novel begins with another storm similar to Sandy um, and uh, shows how that if, if these storms keep coming over and over again, uh, how that what kind of effect that's going to have on society. And then the other trend that I was looking at was this genetic editing, new technology called CRISPR, um, which... Uh, although there's been techniques for genetic engineering have existed for decades, what makes CRISPR different is its ease of use. Uh, you, you have a technology here uh, that, that, that uses um, molecular tools that can be injected into the body, carried to the cells of the body through viruses that, that in, inject the, the viruses as they, in, they infect your cells, uh, put these, these molecular tools into cells, and they can actually uh, cut and paste your DNA sequence. And uh, and the fact is that that uh, it, it's this is not as difficult as former as previous techniques for genetic engineering. So you could have a situation where a, a graduate student with just you know minimal amount of training could you know do this uh, and 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 make very big changes to the, to the, the DNA. And the the really scary part is what happened in China, where a, a Chinese researcher named He Jiangui um, announced that he had made the first genetically modified human babies. He'd actually uh, taken the embryos and uh, uh, changed their their DNA sequences in order to um, prevent them from being infected by HIV. Uh, but a lot of scientists uh, really wondered about the necessity of doing this procedure because there are other more proven ways for uh, preventing the transmission of HIV. And we're not 100% on whether he really did what he claims to have done. Right, right. right. Yeah. We don't know. He didn't provide a lot of evidence in his announcement. But it scared a lot of people. It, it woke people up to the idea that this CRISPR is in the hands of so many people who could now be making changes 
um, without getting authorization from anyone. And so that was scary. So in the book, the climate change sea level rise scenario is sort of is, is a device to set the stage for the physical environment and how that has had societal repercussions. Right, right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the current uh, political situation and uh, regards to science. And what we have now is uh, a presidential administration that is pretty much ignoring this, this really dire trend and, in fact, is taking steps that, uh, that are, are very negative, like, like the, announcing the pullout from the Paris Climate Agreement um, and then also uh, relaxing the, uh, the standards for, fuel em- for, for emissions from cars these are these are, are very negative steps that are just going to make make uh, the climate situation much worse. And so I wanted to extrapolate and, and show you know here's what here's the price that we're going to have to pay as a society if we let this global warming continue. And and uh, you know it really struck home to me. You know the book starts in Coney Island, where which got really you know hit very hard by by Sandy back in 2012. Uh, but I went back to Coney Island just last summer just to go in the water and. It's a lot warmer than I remember. Now, again, you know, I, I used to go to Coney Island all the time back in the 70s when I was a teenager, and uh, I, I don't remember it ever being this warm. So, so it, it, it sort of hits you. You, know, you see all the statistics for average you know, rise in temperatures, but when you see it happening you know, uh, personally, that's when you realize, okay, this, this is just going to get worse and worse. Yeah, and we're sitting here on a, an unusually cold day because of this Arctic air mass that's sort of broken through down into the uh, the lower part of North America, well, the middle part of North America. But uh, as I said on a recent podcast, this is, you know, it's unusually cold for, the, for a couple of days, but it's going to be close to 60 degrees by Tuesday of next week. We're talking on a Friday. Right, right. And, and also uh, the latest science seems to show that a warming world will also be a more volatile world. You'll have more extremes of temperature. So you will see more instances of, you know, great swings in temperature really from going from really lows to really highs, just like we're experiencing right now. Yeah, we've had a couple of fluctuations just in the last couple of weeks of 50 and 60 degrees back and forth. Right. And and you would think these are warning signs. We should take these things seriously, but our government is not doing that. And so that's what compelled me to write this book. And then we have the CRISPR technology um, I don't think you use this word in the book, but basically, and again, I'm, I don't want to give too much away, but this happens pretty early in the book. You realize that CRISPR has been used to create super soldiers. Right. Well, the, the idea there is that CRISPR, in, in addition to changing uh, an embryo, you could actually inject the change, inject this, these CRISPR molecular tools inside uh, an adult uh, in the form of a virus, usually an adenovirus. And... Um, and this virus, it, instead of making you sick, it actually, the, the, as the virus invades the cell, it releases these molecular tools, which then start changing you know, the DNA in, in the cell's nucleus. And, and right now, and this, this stuff, it sounds like science fiction, but it's, it's actually in clinical trials. Right now, the easiest... Um, not to think, make a super soldier, just using CRISPR yes, 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 that, yeah. is in clinical right. trials. Yeah, I was going to say, using CRISPR to do something much simpler, like, for example, change a single gene. So a good example of this is uh, the, the genetic flaw that causes muscular dystrophy. Now, this is a single flaw in what's called the dystrophin gene. And it, uh, because a person with muscular dystrophy does not have the, uh, the correct gene, and so 
their muscles are not producing this crucial protein of dystrophin, and that's why uh, the muscles deteriorate over time, and usually must, people with muscular dystrophy die you know, by, their, by their 20s or 30s. Um, but theoretically, you could stop the deterioration right away if you inject into the muscle these viruses that contain the CRISPR molecular tools. They go into the muscle cells. They actually fix the dystrophin gene so that it can produce a, a form of this dystrophin protein and then you know, prevent the further deterioration of muscle tissue. That's amazing. If it uh, works, and it's in tr- clinical trials right now. I would imagine sickle cell as a point mutation, a single... Uh, point mutation would also be a a pretty good candidate for this kind of a treatment. It is indeed, yeah. In fact, there was just a story in the New York Times about three uh, approaches of genetic engineering to to correct the sickle cell uh, flaw, and one of them does involve CRISPR. I hadn't seen that. No, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, the next step, of course, is can you change more than one gene? Well, that all depends on how much you can stuff into a single virus, you know. But they've gotten, there have been, you know, engineering improvements in the amount of, of, of stuff they can, they can fit into a single virus. So, yes, it is theoretically possible that you could create a CRISPR treatment that changes more than one gene. Now, that, and that's the key for improving intelligence, for example, because intelligence, uh, you know, is, is very multifactorial. In fact, it probably involves thousands of genes. Uh, and in fact, there was another interesting study that came out this year that identified, I think, something like 1,200 uh, uh, points on, on, the, on the DNA sequence where, um, that, that seemed to have some effect on intelligence, not, not individually, like any, a change in any one of those sites, those DNA sites, is not enough to have any statistical effect on your intelligence. But when they looked at all 1,200 and they, they created an index to say, okay, if you have these variations at those one of the, at those 1200 sites and they correlated that with the amount of education that that a person that's had. so important i was going to bring up you know for want of a, a, a less accessible term but just nurture nature you can have all the raw intelligence you want but unless you're in an environment that nurtures your growth intellectually it's not going to matter Right, exactly, exactly. It's 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 really very statistical. I mean, what they what they found was if you do have a high index of of the correct so-called correct variations at these sites, then there it was associated with higher education levels, which seems to indicate that although any one of these changes uh, in the DNA really doesn't have much effect on intelligence, if you look, if you have, you know, the ideal variations across 1,200 of these DNA sites, then it does seem to have a statistical effect, which, is, which I thought was fascinating and, and does sort of indicate that, yeah, this is, you can perhaps um, affect someone's intelligence through genetic changes. Highly theoretically and well down the road. Yeah. I mean, changing 1,200 uh, sites on, on and, and you wonder, you know, what is the cost-benefit ratio exactly. there? Exactly. But, you know, the comment, this book I wrote is, it's supposed to be fun, and it's supposed to, uh, you know, look at, um, you know, what is possible in the science and, and how that could create a fun story. I mean, I mean you know, I, I wanted the book to be exciting and to, um, to show, you know, a very, very uh, dire situation um, you, you know, that, that is caused partly by, you know, the government becoming more and more totalitarian and, and using these kind of genetic tools to clamp down on the uh, population. More with Mark Albert coming up, but first, a segment sponsored by AstraZeneca. 
It's often difficult to achieve the same level of cancer screenings in underserved communities as in wealthier ones. There are many barriers, such as time, transportation, language, and education about the need for such interventions. This is something Keith Winfrey, chief medical officer at Noella Community Health Center in East New Orleans, knows well. We serve a very underserved community, uh, largely uninsured patients, Medicaid patients, and it's very diverse. We have a large Vietnamese population, Hispanic population, and African-American population, and we just focus on providing primary care, health promotion, and disease prevention care in our organization. Keith Winfrey received the Catalyst for Change Award for his work improving colorectal cancer screening rates at the 2019 Cancer Community Awards sponsored by AstraZeneca. The Catalyst for Change Award celebrates those who significantly improve access to cancer care for underserved populations. Colorectal cancer is the second most common cause of cancer death in the U.S., and Louisiana has the fourth highest mortality rate from colorectal cancer in the country. We improved our colorectal cancer screening rate from 3% in 2012 to 80% in 2018. The C2 Awards are part of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer program, which brings together the community that is working to drive meaningful change in cancer care. As we head into this year's awards, Scientific American Custom Media, in partnership with the awards, is taking a look back to visit with last year's winners and hear what's been happening since we first met them. So our goal has been to sort of achieve the trifecta in cancer screening, which is to reach 80% in colorectal cancer screening, breast cancer screening, and cervical cancer screening. So that was our focus. We did run into a bit of a snag last year, and so we didn't quite reach 80%, but we'd gotten close to 75% in two of the areas and close to 60% in the third. There was one lady just recently who had a very large multi-lobed polyp that was most certainly would have transformed to cancer had it not been detected when it did. When you heard you won the C2 Catalyst for Change Award, what was your reaction? I was shocked and amazed. When looking at the criteria for the award, I just assumed that there were so many organizations around the country that were doing amazing work that, although we had accomplished quite a bit here, just felt like it would have killed in comparison to work that is done around the nation. And so for us to receive that award, I was humbled and shocked. You've gotten a lot of attention from the award, and people have reached out to you from around the country. Have you been able to use the award to help others find better ways to improve cancer screenings in underserved communities? That's exactly what they've come to me asking about. And it's been great. So we essentially share our story initially, and a lot of what is shared in our story resonates with their community, whether it's transportation barriers, knowledge and awareness barriers and system-related barriers. And so just being able to share our story and the steps that we took to overcome those barriers has resonated with various groups and organizations. And as a result, they've all felt that there was something they could take away from our strategies, our recommendation that could improve their organization as well. So through the award, have you made any particularly interesting connections? Have you met anyone you were interested in collaborating with? We did, yes. One in particular, Leah Fine, she won Callis Ward in her category as well. And we've been able to stay in contact over the past year and just discuss the progress in our work and just brainstorm as to how maybe the efforts that we've accomplished, how they could be tied together and how we can benefit one another. What might such a collaboration look like? Well, so her research and work is on lung cancer screening and early detection. And they're trying to connect with primary care providers in her community. 
And so having worked in a primary care setting myself and been successful at increasing screening rates, it could be either sharing some of our best practices, maybe collaborating with some of the primary care providers in their network and doing a virtual best practice webinar or sharing uh, some of the success we're doing and giving a recommendation on how it could be effective in their region as well. And after your experience as a winner, you decided to be a judge this year. What are you seeing in this year's group of nominees? There's a lot of amazing work going on nationwide, and a number of the projects are on a community level and settings that are oftentimes underrepresented or not a lot of attention or focus there. I mean, the underserved area is kind of like the area that we're working with. A number of the nominees are in settings very similar to that, particularly in the Catalyst for Change. And to see the amazing work that's being done is very inspiring and encouraging. And it's actually rather difficult to decide who would be the top winner in that category. So how important do you think it is to bring the cancer community together through this award? When I think about the C2 award and what it represents, in my mind, I see it as sort of creating a nationwide network of cancer professionals or creating like a national cancer department where it's integrated from the front line, which is the early detection and prevention, all the way through the end stage with palliative care. And just to have members and organizations and individuals working collectively, collaboratively throughout that whole process is what I see this could sort of evolve and grow into. That's what incites me the most about the wards in this process. This podcast was made possible through the support of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program. Keith Winfrey is the Chief Medical Officer at the Noella Community Health Center in New Orleans. Now more with Mark Alpert, author of The Coming Storm. If you were to uh, just theoretically try to genetically modify a regular person to become a super soldier. And it's not the Captain America scenario where you put them in that, in that box and press the, you know, flip a few levers and out comes Chris Evans. Uh, with the genetics, we're talking about doing what? Increasing, I mean, you, you want somebody to be strong. You want somebody to be fast. You want them to be full of rage, I guess. Right, right. And, and you know, of course, you know, in, in, as in any thriller, things go wrong. And we are not at the stage where we really understand, uh, you know, how, again, the genes, you know, uh, work together to create intelligence, agility, any of these things that you want to enhance in a super soldier. Um, but you could see a, a government that uh, attempting to uh, to do this and then running into terrible troubles because uh, one of the things that scientists worry about CRISPR is what they call an off-target effect. So, so the 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 CRISPR molecule consists of two parts. One of them, which uh, which actually cuts, it's an enzyme, the Cas9 enzyme that actually cuts the DNA, and then there's a guide, an RNA guide that uh, finds the right part of the chromosome to cut. Uh, but it's possible what, what they've seen is sometimes there's what they call an off-target effect where it cuts the wrong the wrong part of the DNA, and that could use lead to you know terrible consequences. And so you know in my book you see this start to happen. You see these people who were designed to be super soldiers, their bodies are breaking down because they really didn't understand the technology as well as they should. One one other thing you know maybe even more important than intelligence or or strength you know th- these things might be kind of 
difficult to engineer. But one thing that might be a little easier to engineer is tameness. And this is something that, that I, I, I learned that um, they, they, scientists have identified a, a particular part of the chromosome. I think they, 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 they refer to it as tame one. And this, this what, what, they, what they did was they looked at domesticated animals versus their wild cousins, and they tried to see, well, where, you know, these, these animals have been bred to, uh, to be more... For docility. Yeah, exactly, I mean, for thousands of years. Or, or just for a few decades. We ran the article by Lee Dugakin last year on breeding for docility in foxes. And within a couple of dozen generations, I mean, you start to see effects within five or six generations, but within a couple of dozen, you have foxes that will sit in your lap mm-hmm. and basically behave like dogs. In fact, the behavior is accompanied by physical changes that are familiar in our domesticated animals. Like a regular fox, the ears are always straight up, the tail is straight. All of a sudden, these foxes that had been bred for docility had floppy ears, uh, they had curly tails, their color changed so that they were starting to resemble dogs that you'd have as pets. Right. Which seems to indicate that, you know, maybe you don't need 1,200 different genetic changes to create this docility. Maybe it's a smaller number. Yeah, and, and later change, later uh, analysis of the genetic changes showed that there were, yeah, a few genes in particular that were crucial, like you like you said, with um, TAME-1. Right. And, and could you imagine then a totalitarian government that decides, you know, people in general are just too difficult. We want to genetically change them so that they will just not, you know, freak out over everything. And that's scary because, because now you have this, this is possible through CRISPR, uh, you know, down the road, that if you identified those genes and made changes to those genes, that you could create, you know, the, like a Stepford Wives okay. situation where, where no one is, we've completely lost freedom because we don't even have the genetic ability to fight anymore. And that could happen without any kind of a genetic engineering intervention. I mean, that can happen to a population of animals through breeding. Right over time anyway. So, you know, are we are we doing it to ourselves? I mean, a lot of people think that humanity kind of domesticated itself, mm-hmm. but are we doing it to ourselves even more now by, you know, watching TV a lot? Yeah, and, I've it, thought about this too. You know, yeah. you, you, we, a big change happened in the 60s when birth control was introduced because now only the people who actually want to have kids have kids and it didn't used to be that way. So you wonder, okay, and this is a large-scale effect, how does that affect the population? Yeah, it's an interesting question that uh, I don't recall anybody ever raising before. <laughs> no, I, I, well, I intend to raise it right now. I think we need to do research. Well, think about it. You know, look at all these helicopter parents we have now. Is that just the culture or maybe you know, because we're breeding people who – who wanted to be bred in the first place, you know, maybe you're seeing more parental attention. I don't know. This I'm just making stuff up at this point. But, but that's what novelists do, okay? I used to be a science journalist, and, and now uh, with these thrillers, uh, I feel like I have a little bit more uh, latitude to just go off and uh, imagine things. A little bit. Yeah. But that's why I really enjoy reading your books. This is which book? This is my ninth book. Wow. Yeah, ninth novel. And how many of them were... Uh, Young adult versus adult. Uh, uh, six adult and three young adult. Yeah. And, uh, and I owe a lot to Scientific American, really, because you know, I was an editor there for 10 years. And uh, 
I learned a lot about a, a whole variety of subjects while I was editing, you know, scientists who contribute to the magazine. And so uh, while I was doing this, I was taking, you know, notes to myself thinking, okay, this would make a really cool thriller, you know, and that's what I did. Yeah, and that's why I like reading your books because the science is real. It just – you take it to an extreme and that's fine because, you know, I know that I'm not reading a science textbook. I'm not reading a journal article. I'm reading – a thriller, a, a novel, but but I know that the root of the of the scenario is actually real, and so that makes it really fun as a reader. Right, and and, and I usually have the protagonists or scientists themselves. So, uh, for example, in the coming storm, uh, the hero heroine of the book is Jenna Khan, who is a, a genetic scientist uh, working at uh, Rockefeller University, uh, and. Um, she has been enlisted in in this project to uh, use CRISPR to uh, you know really change a lot of genes you know at once, and she's the one who who tells her her colleagues we shouldn't be doing human tests at this point. We just don't understand this well enough. But of course, her advice is ignored. She's she's fired from the project, and that's where the book starts because uh, she's a loose end that the government has to has to tie up, and so she's on the run. Um, and if, and what happens is she teams up with uh, a, a victim of one of the genetic experiments. So it's one, like I mentioned, uh, you know, because we don't understand the technology that well, you're going to have you know terrible effects in in in, in the experimental trials. And so some extremely damaged uh, soldier um, joins you know forces with her, and the two of them have to stop the experiment. That's right. It's a thriller from page one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want it to be fun and uh you know I, I want you to like the characters and and yeah there's there is a political agenda i admit to it i mean i, I do think that right now you know we're not in a good place uh, as far as the government taking science seriously and so i just wanted to write a, a more of a dystopian book saying you know if we continue down this road it's only going to lead to catastrophe that was novelist Mark Alpert speaking before COVID-19 on how we ignore science at our peril. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs> <laughs>